name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. A couple things I want to tend to real quick before we get into the sermon fully. One is, let's talk about that second lesson that's not there today. And I invited us to consider, in all seriousness, I invited us to consider just for the season of Advent to imagine uh, the second lesson not, not being a part of our service so we could focus more on the preacher, whether it be Andrew or I or a guest preacher, uh, will have the opportunity to kind of focus us on the lessons and the themes of the day. What I've heard from, I've heard from a good number of folks uh, on both sides of that, some who, who miss it and some who are okay that it's gone, and I've appreciated it. And one of the things that's really humbled me in regards to that is how thoughtful you have been. See, oftentimes you get up in front of a congregation, you invite them to do something, and they smile at you, and they say they're going to do it, and then they don't do it. That is not St. Luke's, and I am so thankful for that. But I want to be very clear, just so everybody who didn't hear me last Sunday knows, that this is going to end at the end of Advent. This is just for me to see where we're at. And then at the annual meeting, in my address to you all, I'm going to tackle this in a more full way. But even then, it doesn't mean we're going to eliminate the second lesson. I want to be very clear about that. We're just going to spend time thinking about it together. So just hang with me if you're someone who misses it. And those who are excited that it's gone, it's coming back. So hang with me then. We're just going to see this. But I've really appreciated the thoughtful responses. So I just want to address that. that It's coming back. And it'll definitely be back at Christmas. And then we're going to talk about it in 2020. And there's a lot more I want to expound on in the future. So when you come to the annual meeting, I'll do a lot of that work. So I just want to be very clear, we're running an experiment that has a finite beginning and a finite ending. So just hang on to that. The other thing is Georgia lost, so there is no sermon today. (laughs) We're going to take this outside during the sermon and we're going to burn it in unquenchable fire. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Alan. I'm just, I, I said that at 745. I didn't mean it. Of all the teams for us to lose to, which I expected we would, this is a gracious team. Uh, it was very, actually, it was probably a good example of how we should all get along. That was a very intense game. There's a Christian message in this, I promise, that will tie to the sermon. Uh, so many of those players played high school ball together, and it was really impressive to see how they kept the cheapiness, and they played football, and they had a good time. You don't see that very often. There wasn't fights, there wasn't fight. It was very emotionally driven for both teams, of course. But at the end of the game, the camaraderie and the excitement and the joy amongst the players was palatable. What an image, right? What an image of two people on, who had two opposite goals, two groups of people come together at the end of this battle and hold each other. What an image. Now let's talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, that's somebody you want to invite over to your house for supper, don't you? <laughs> right? We all have a little honey. I'm sure we all have locust in a bag in the, cab- in the cupboard, right? We all have that. He's really easy. I mean, that's an easy person to invite over. It wouldn't be too hard to, to produce that food. Well, maybe it's hard to produce that food. But that's John the Baptist. And now, John the Baptist, like many of the prophets of old, was operating like a prophet. And what I mean by that is, He had a particular message that he said in a particular place to a particular group of people. If you look at the prophets of old, they all operated in a particular place, saying a particular message to a particular group of people. All you'd have to do is thumb through the Old Testament and find 
those prophets, whether it be the 12 minor prophets or the three major prophets. They all had a message to somebody, and they spoke from some place, and they stuck to it. John the Baptist is interesting, though, because he goes to the wilderness. Now, the wilderness evokes a whole lot of imagery uh, in the Hebrew Bible and for the people of Israel and for those who must have been coming to, to, to see him, whether to be baptized by him or coming because they're skeptical about what in the world is this man doing who eats locust and wild honey. They're coming out. Now, the wilderness, though, if you remember with me, after the Red Sea, after the uh, Israelites are taken out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea and they enter into what? That is well done, Episcopalians. We all murmured it, hoping it's the right answer. <laughs> they all go to, you can say it more emphatically, they all go to the wilderness. Let's try that. The wilderness. wilderness. If you take one thing away, that's what I want you to go tell somebody. Come to St. Luke's because we live in the wilderness. They go to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, a lot happens. And a lot of it's struggle. They struggle with their relationship with God. Of course, we're all going to remember that they got Torah in the wilderness. Moses came down the mountain. But we're also going to remember that they moved away from God in the wilderness. But yet, somewhere along the way, they reconnected to God, and then they crossed into the promised land. So the wilderness is this interesting place. It's always in between somewhere and somewhere else. It's never usually the place you live. You don't live in the wilderness usually. Usually you, you live somewhere else. You know, most of us don't camp in the wilderness every day of our lives. Some might. I mean, I've watched that wild in Alaska, I think is what it's called, and they're clearly in the wilderness 365 days a year, and they enjoy that. But for most of us, we tend to go where there's others around us. Well, in our story, John's out there. He's baptizing people, calling them to repentance. And I wish I had a couple hours to expand upon the biblical understanding of repentance because most of what comes to our minds is very shallow understanding of repentance, and we just don't have time to get into it. But maybe in the future, we'll be able to do that in a Sunday school class. But he's calling people to repentance, and he's baptizing them. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up, and he looks at them. Now, this is not generally how you greet people at your home, I don't think. If somebody comes over, even somebody you don't like, you probably don't look at them and say, you brood of vipers, welcome to the yawn household. Like, that's just not usually what we do. Now, we might be thinking it, right? We might be thinking, if we're honest, we're, we're thinking that sometimes about certain people, and that's not good, but we do that because we're humans and we, we fall short. But that's what John does because John puts it all out on the line. He looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have left the creature comforts of the city. They've come maybe because they're interested in what he's doing, maybe because they feel threatened, maybe because they just want to see the crazy guy in the wilderness. We don't really know, but they come. And, of course, the gospel story would allude to the fact that maybe they feel threatened by him. We can maybe draw that conclusion, but it's a loose conclusion based on context, contextual evidence of the gospel. But anyways, they're out there. These guys have a lot of power, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John looks at them, greets them, you brood of vipers. And he highlights the fact that they're hypocritical. And then he highlights the fact that they're going to rest in their hypocrisy by connecting themselves back to Abraham. Abraham being the person that they look up to, the person in their ancestry that holds them and makes them holy, if you will. The person they're going to lean on. Now, what's interesting about that is what John's highlighting when he does that 
is the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who really don't get along with each other, and Andrew, I think, did an exceptional job explaining that to us a few weeks ago uh, when we had the Sadducees come. They, they really are very different from one another. But sometimes they're united when it comes to people that threaten them and that they don't get along with. So here they are together. But both of them lean on who they know. Now, we all know people in our lives that we call them name droppers, right? Everybody look at their toes. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But sometimes we, we know those folks. I have, a, I have a nephew, or not a nephew, not a nephew, a cousin. My nephew's still this big. I hope he's not name dropping yet. Um, unless it's my name, right? No? Y'all aren't with me? We awake yet? No? Okay. Anyways, I have a cousin who, who does that. Now, he does it. He does it in a gracious way, but it's all about who he knows. And, and sometimes it's, it's hurt him. It's hurt him in some job interviews when he's gone to certain companies. He's been very successful at what he does, but he's, he's had a lot of bumps in the road because he'll sit in these interviews, and instead of just being who he is, where he is, sometimes he likes to lift up who he knows and who he's worked before before. And a lot of times it shuts out the, the interviewers, and they cut him loose, and he's always wondering, why did they cut him loose? Why did they cut me loose? So we all kind of know folks like that. Well, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their holiness, if you will, hinges on the fact that they believe they are directly connected and will tell you how they are directly connected to all the holiest people in Israel's history, going back to Abraham. And that is what John's calling attention to. He is saying to them, it doesn't matter who you know or who you're connected to. What matters is what decisions and what life you live. Abraham's not going to save you from yourself. You have to make some decisions, and Abraham can't make them for you. And that's what John's getting at. Now, what's interesting about this message of repentance is that you might think of it like rafting. How many of you have been rafting before? Right? Raise them up high. This is good. This is a very adventurous church. The 745ers had a lot of hands go up. And don't tell them I said this, but I was surprised. Um, but a lot of hands went up at 745 too, so kudos to y'all. We should hang out more often. So when you go rafting, you know that you're often told, at least I was told the several times I went rafting, and I'm terrible at it. You're supposed, when the boat gets to rocking, you're supposed to do the exact opposite of what your body tells you to do. Or you fall out of the boat. Well, I fall out of the boat. Because if the boat leans this way and I'm closer to the water than I was a few seconds ago, then naturally I want to lean this way to not fall in the water and then I inadvertently fall in the water. Right? That's what happens with rafting. Rafting is all about teaching yourself not to respond to your natural reflexes. Because your natural reflexes nine times out of ten or nine and a half times out of ten are going to put you in a situation where you end up in the water and you end up like me. You fall into the part of the water where all the rocks are and your little helmet just hits and you sound like a little bell going down the river until you can get back in the boat. Thank God for helmets. That's neither here nor there. I wore a helmet for a sermon not too long ago. Repentance is that way. A lot of times when we hear the word repentance, especially this time of year, we want to do a lot of looking either at ourselves and feeling very guilty about who we are, about how terrible we are, or we, or we like to do this. This is a rather new phenomenon in the last 50 years. We want to look at other people and decide that they need to be repentant. Because there, you know, we end up being like that parable a few weeks ago where we're like the Pharisee who looked at the tax collector and said, thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. 
These are kind of the two realms of which we operate, and both are really missing the point of repentance. What John is calling his people to, and like I said, if I had more time to expand upon this, so you just got to go with me. What John is trying to do, and that Jesus will fulfill, is a reorientation of people back to God and back to each other. The Pharisees and Sadducees, John's not dumb. He knows that the Pharisees and Sadducees have compromised the law in many, many ways. They have compromised their ability to live out the law, their understanding of the law, because of other personal objectives. And those personal objectives are the very things that John is calling them in a very radical way to repent of. Because they have overshadowed and muddied the law that God has called them to. They are constantly for all intents and purposes, breaking relationships with each other and drawing lines around those they deem righteous and those they don't. And it becomes an interesting interesting charade of who's more righteous than the other person. Maybe not so dissimilar than what we tend to do as human beings. We tend to fall into this trap, right? We, We like to pretend who's more righteous and who's not. And repentance expects and demands us to turn back to God. And in some ways, it's kind of a beautiful, less stressful thing. Because when we turn back to God, we put God in his lane. Actually, we don't put God in any lane. God's in his lane. But we get out of his lane and get in our own lane. Which, I don't know about you, but I don't tend to like to be like God. How many of us like to be like God? Raise your hand. Yeah, that would surprise me. Everybody who's sitting over in this section may want to move for the lightning. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but right, we all kind of struggle with that. We all tend to, and it, we, get, we get mad about it too. We get so angry. How many times have we seen Christians just get angry at each other? I mean, and we say we're not angry, but we're angry. And we break relationships and we, we shatter just everything because somewhere in our minds, we think we're more righteous than somebody else. Now we can back up and not talk about Christians and talk about human beings. In our world today, how many of us, want to break relationship with each other the minute there's a shred of disagreement or a shred of something that bothers us. We tend to break the relationships and form community around people who think and act just like us. And it's radically non-gospel of us. Because when you look at the nature of the Christian church from the day one and the nature of Jesus' ministry, it was to an eclectic group of people that Jesus was constantly inviting them to turn back to God and to focus on God. Verna Dozier was a theologian in the Episcopal Church in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s in particular is where she was most active. She's an African-American woman, lived through the civil rights uh, movement. Would say if she was alive, I think she would argue, and this may make us all uncomfortable, would say that the civil rights movement still happening today, that it, never, it didn't have a finite beginning and a finite ending. There's still a lot of work to be done. But she said one thing, uh, she talked about this, she wrote a book called The Dream of God. And she talked about how God has a dream of, of God's people the, in, in the institution of creation, the, the beginning, all the way through was God's dream that we come together, focus on God, focus on each other, lift up love, hope, justice, mercy, and have the courage to live those out into the world. Now, in this book, full disclosure, in case you look it up, you're going to wonder why I even like this book. She does attack 
attack might be a strong word. She is critical of the institutional church as being an impediment to the people fulfilling God's dream for themselves. That we get so caught in the institution that we forget in local congregations and local prayer groups that we are the people of God and we are capable of wonderful and amazing things when we can put all that aside and just focus on where God's calling us. And that the institutional church isn't bad in its own right, but can be bad when we're so obsessed with the the institution that we forget the work that God calls us to. We forget to go out into the world. We forget to hold people, love people, forgive people. So that's the gist of her book. Well, I got to thinking about this whole idea of dreaming. Now, I know all of us this time of year have some things we have to get done. We talked about this last Sunday, right? We have probably have a list of things we have to do, whether it be shopping, parties, you name it. We've got lots to do, right? Right. And we're probably all stressed about it now because you're giving up another Sunday morning when you could be shopping to be with me. So you're just getting doubly stressed. You missed that sale at Macy's this morning. No. So we have that. So what I want to invite you to do for a minute, we're going to be a little hands-on for a second. I want you just to think about, on one hand, and we're going to pause. I'm going to pause for a moment. Just quickly, what are those things that are before you the next couple weeks that you have that you feel you have to get done because of the time of year it is what are those things you don't have to say them out loud just think about them just think about them just want you to think about them okay thank you decorated tree don't call them out though but thank you decorate that is important I love trees decorated tree okay now I want you on take a moment and think about your image of the kingdom of God that you want to see at Christmas. What is it that you want to see in this world at Christmas? When Jesus comes and we celebrate the, the festival of his birth, what is it that you want to see, whether it be in your relationships, your family life, your work life, what is it you want to see that brings forth the kingdom of God? What is that? What's your dream? What's your dream for the people of God at Christmas, what is it that you want to see? Think about that. Now the hard part. What on this first list is going to help this come to fruition? What on this first list is going to make your dream for the kingdom of God what is it, what's going to make that happen? Now, don't feel bad, right? Don't feel bad. It's also people look at their toes. Don't look at your toes, look up. All right, so here's the last part of this exercise. I want you to spend some time this week, today, imagining the things that you might need to add to that first list, how you are going to participate in the bringing forth of the kingdom of God anew in this world. How are we at St. Luke's going to do that work? How are we going to turn back to God and turn more deeply to one another and to the work that God calls us to? Are we going to find the courage to go and live out the gospel in the hardest of places and in the easiest of places? Are we going to be able to stand in the wilderness? Because I think that's where we live, actually. We live in the wilderness. Are we going to be willing to stand and greet people and tell them about Jesus? And are we going to show them who Jesus is? Are we going to be able to lift them up, walk with them, 
Meet them where they are. This is what the gospel demands us to do. And sometimes this time of year we get so caught up in things that are, I'm not saying aren't important. Like I have my own list. They're very important. But sometimes we forget that the whole point of Advent is to reorient our life back to God and to each other and grow more deeply towards one another and towards God. And then when we do that, we find the courage and the strength to meet the day that God has put before us, to meet the relationships that God has put before us, to leave doors open instead of slamming them shut in the, in the face of other people. This is what we're invited to consider in Advent. So that when we stand around that manger, on, for most of us on the 24th, for some of us on the 25th, whichever day you come, when we stand around that manger and we greet the baby Jesus in that vulnerable, childlike form, we stand there kneeling, bringing our gifts, which is ourselves, back to that manger in full repentance, in full orientation to God. And from that, we move. We move. But we have to have the courage and we have to have the focus to shine on God right now and show God to others. Amen. Please stand and join me in the Nicene Creed found on page 7 of your bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. 